Welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at the most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Better security means changing the way we work, and doing that means changing an organization's culture. Creating an environment where everyone thinks security first is never easy. But in the long term, it's worth it. Training and awareness programs only go so far, and it needs constant work to keep cybersecurity to the fore. That's why today's guest argues for cultural change, in effect creating a security culture. Kai Rua is an author and researcher, and one of the leading international authorities on this subject. I started by asking him to explain how security culture differs from security training and awareness, and why that difference matters. So security awareness uh, is a term that we use to describe people having some sort of knowledge or being aware of a certain uh, situation, for example, phishing uh, or other kind of security related uh, topics. Um, and security culture is a much broader scope. So culture is uh, typically the ideas and the customs or habits, if you like, and the social behaviors of a particular group. So, for example, in your workspace, uh, security culture would be those ideas and those uh, customs and those social behaviors uh, at your workplace. So how did you get into this. What is your background in the industry? The long story is back in the 19, um, 1980s, uh, my father brought home a computer, an IBM PC with a modem, and uh, he had big ambitions, but it was like 20 years too early for those. Uh, so it ended up being my toy. Uh, and I spent a lot of time exploring the world uh, in my teens, let's put it that way. Uh, 10 years later, uh, I started my first company, uh, providing consulting services uh, to uh, on IT and uh, very quickly um, on internet services. So this would be 94, 95. Uh, and as part of that business, uh, we started hosting services and hosting solutions. And then uh, obviously we had to protect those things um, the way that you could protect those things back in the days. Um, and then, of course, uh, .com happened. Um, I realized at some point that uh, I wanted to focus, specialize a little bit more. And uh, in the early 2000s, I decided that security would be my new home, if you like. And very shortly thereafter, so probably 2005, 2006, uh, I started uh, focusing on privacy and the security culture. And, and that's when I discovered uh, first the, dis the differences between awareness and culture, and also the fact that our industry uh, back then, and scaringly still today, um, are doing these trainings mainly because of compliance. So, so they do it so they can check some boxes and say to the legal people that, you know, we did it this year again. Um, while for the past, say, five years, 
uh, we are seeing a new trend uh, emerging here, and that is companies and employees doing security trainings because they realize that the world has changed dramatically and we actually need to take this responsibility. What prompted you to start researching security culture? Uh, the the um, realization or acceptance, maybe, that in my perspective, my view, my opinion back then, our industry did uh, training of uh, people, of employees, all wrong and not right. Uh, and first I was like, oh, we need to fix this and, and started looking at uh, pedagogy, uh, teaching, training, stuff like that. But then at some point I realized, like many others before and after, uh, realized that, oh, when we come to employees, we are no longer talking about computers, are we? We are actually talking about people. And if you are talking about people, we need to understand people. Uh, and, and that realization led me to psychology and sociology uh, and, of course, later partnering with uh, some of the uh, really smartest people uh, around this planet uh, on these kind of topics. Which type of organizations, though, when you started to look into this, which type of organizations had a, an effective security culture? So, so I, I would actually go to the extreme here, Stephen, and say that Back in a day, uh, very, very few organizations had an effective security culture. Uh, I will actually claim that today as well. And uh, the difference between now and then is that we have data that backs my claims. Uh, so, so one of the things I've done the past uh, 10 years is to create a way to measure security culture. The reason I did that was that back in the day, we had no idea how to do it. And most people didn't even realize why it would be important. And it's not only important to talk to um, in, in order to answer questions from people like you, Stephen. Uh, how do you know, right? But it's also important from that organization's perspective um, uh, how are we doing? Is our culture good or is it bad or is it something else? Um, but, but my impression is that uh, back then we didn't even think it was a problem. So you're creating a benchmark or a point of reference that organizations can look at. Now, one organization that's often described as having a strong security culture or an effective one, uh, are government and military organizations. So they have this approach to secrets that information is distributed on the basis of need to know. If you walk into a room and you see a secret document on the table, you walk back out again without touching it. That is very ingrained because those people are trained from when they start their careers and they know that literally lives depend on it. That might be an extreme example, but are the parallels in industry, in commerce, in education, in other fields that can draw from those type of examples? Or is that a completely isolated case that doesn't really offer any learnings for the rest of us? So, so, so the scary thing here is that your example is a very good one. Uh, and when you observe that kind of behavior, uh, it seems to ring true when it comes to certain uh, groups or, or organizations, like you mentioned, uh, the um, defense uh, industry, um, army people, to some extent police, 
Uh, but the challenge here is that those behaviors that you, you point to as ingrained are mainly in the physical world, not in the cyber domain. Uh, and, and one of the challenges we've had and, and still have is how do you take that physical behavior, your physical world, your surroundings, that piece of paper that you didn't touch, and move that into this computer screen. Now, now that is a whole different kind of beast altogether. Um, and, and, and that's why I care a lot about this, right? And, and want to figure out, are these environments or groups of people that we think are so good, are they actually good also when it comes to cyber uh, domain and uh, hygiene and, and security, or are they not? And to answer your question then, uh, what we see in our benchmark, Stephen, is, is very fascinating. Uh, we have, for example, the government as one of the, uh, the groups that we report on. And like you, I would, to some extent, expect government to report a reasonably good security culture. Uh, but in our uh, studies, we see that they are not the best. In fact, they are lingering at the bottom of the scale together with, for example, education uh, and uh, maybe even more scary, um, uh, energy and um, uh, uh, facilities um, 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 industries, which are often considered critical infrastructure. So, so you would want them to have a better security culture. Uh, on the opposite side of the specter, though, uh, you do find, for example, bank and uh, um, financial uh, institutions, they typically rate much better than anyone else. Uh, some of them even report a good security culture, uh, which is actually very rare. Um, and, and, and we believe that the reason that we see these kind of behaviors uh, across the, the uh, scale here is that bank and insurance and finance uh, industries are heavily regulated, uh, not only by themselves, but also by governments and, and um, uh, global uh, regulations, uh, which have led them to a whole different kind of regime, if you like. Uh, another interesting thing with those industries is that they deal with risk on a daily basis, and not only physical risk, but um, abstract risk, so, so, so monetary risk, lending risk, those kind of things. So, so, so they may have a different uh, mindset. Um, so so, so, so the, what I think is fascinating with these findings is that the world it turns out to not be as clearly um, defined as we first think. And how much of this then is down to incentives? Because, yes, you can have sanctions and rules, but incentives are quite important in culture. And when you look at financial services, one interesting thing is, yes, um, I, I completely understand what you're saying about regulation, but that's only one part of it because, again, they're commercial companies and they're in competitive environments. So ultimately, the sanction is the customers walk, whether they're investment banking trade customers or whether they're individuals, because they have a choice. You usually don't have a choice of railway company, tax authority, possibly in many countries, healthcare. You're stuck with the provider you have. So that incentive to do right by the customer may not be culturally 
working its way through into security in the way that perhaps it is in a bank, where if you lose your high profile, high net worth individuals details, they will go to a competitor. And they'll probably sue you as well for good measure. And, and then comes the uh, the um, uh, finance uh, committee and then fine you in addition. Absolutely. Is that significant? Is that a significant indicator of behavior? I prefer to, to rely on, on facts and not just my opinions. Uh, and, and the challenge uh, of this very specific topic uh, is that I don't have facts from our own research uh, on um, uh, incentives, the use of incentives. There are some other interesting um, social psychology research being done uh, where both positive and negative um, incentives have been used. So, so uh, in general, we know that they are very effective. Uh, the challenge is that in the specific domain of cyber uh, security, we don't have any, uh, at least as far as I know, uh, any research um, uh, specifically looking at, uh, at uh, those things. Uh, that being said, uh, one of the very fascinating researches that um, my team did uh, last year and we just published this week uh, shows that there is a very strong uh, behavioral component uh, linked to security culture. Uh, so, so one of the things we found is that if you have a poor security culture, and um, that means you're scoring 60 or below in our benchmark, uh, your employees are 52 times more likely to share credentials. So basically log in to your email systems or, or, or stuff like that, than organizations who score with a uh, good security culture. And and that's a 52 times difference, Stephen. That, that's huge. That is huge, isn't it? And that's where it gets interesting, because when you start to talk about behaviours, you're not necessarily talking about something that requires investment. It's not about putting in more tools. Yes, I'm sure monitoring tools and surveillance tools and so forth can help to inform the CISO and the other directors as to what's happening. But ultimately, this is about people. So how do you then start to work on changing that culture? Let's say you are below 60%. What would be the first steps? One thing that we see a lot uh, is that a new way of uh, training and assessing employees makes a lot of sense compared to what uh, the industry has done traditionally, which is typically once a year you, you have some sort of mandatory training. Um, and, and I have to admit that I came to this slowly and uh, not willingly, uh, but the data is very, very clear. Uh, if you use phishing assessments on your employees, every single employee um, at a regular um, interval, um, for example, once a month, uh, and then you 
learn very quickly, or, or your system actually, learn very, very quickly who are likely to click or engage with specific types of phishing um, content. So, for example, uh, you, for example, maybe you are more inclined to click on um, picking up packages from uh, the postal service, uh, whereas I may be more inclined to, to clicking on stuff from the bank, stuff like that. Now, uh, what makes this interesting, though, is that when you get uh, caught, if you like, um, and based on what caught you, uh, we can then give you a specific training on that particular phishing problem, which is related to you. Um, and what we see then is that by targeting or, or uh, making that content related and relevant to you as an individual, we see huge decline in the interactions you have with phishing. Uh, so an example, for example, uh, when we do this uh, on new employees, meaning that uh, it's a new customer and, and they haven't done anything yet, uh, we see typically around 40% of the employees uh, getting caught out by a phishing email. That's, that's a huge number. That's four out of 10 of the employees. That, that's crazy, right? Um, and then uh, how do we deal with that? Well, uh, if you follow this approach and give these employees, those 30%, the specific training they need to learn how to avoid this in the future, that number drops down to half, just shy of 20% after just three months. And then if you continue for another uh, nine months or a full year, it drops down to less than 4%. That's four out of 100 people. Now, that's a huge and, and demonstrable evidence that these kind of um, uh, training connected to, to assessments are yielding huge results. But this is a long-term gain, isn't it? It's not something that you can introduce in a few weeks, run a couple of courses, do a bit of testing, and then put it away. No, exactly. I, I wouldn't call it a long-term game. I would call, call it a constant game. Uh, you need to do this. Uh, every organization needs to do this constantly, not once a year, not once a quarter, but every single day you need to have something going on. How much is the security culture and the effectiveness of our security processes being impacted by the changes to the way people are working now with a far more distributed workforce? In some cases, most people, all people working from home, at least temporarily. And how does your side of the industry adjust to that? There are a number of things. Um, we and my team, we have not been able to look at those data yet, but we will be doing that this year. And then we will be able to tell you how how it changed from a security culture and, and uh, phishing perspective. Other companies have done some interesting studies and, and uh, most of them are building on trust or lack of trust. So, so I saw this summer um, some data suggesting that 50% of organizations uh, do not trust their employees when they're working from home. If they don't trust them, they need to change the approach on how they work with them. The flip side of the coin is that 
uh, a lot of uh, employees, and I think the number was like 40% or something, are sharing their work computer with their family. Uh, and, and then you have a number of different perspectives, right? You, you have your employer who is concerned about uh, data breaches and, and uh, shared credentials and all that. And then you have the other side, which is employees who feel like, oh, my, my kid needs to go to school. We only have this one computer. Uh, we can't afford another one. How do we deal with this? Well, they have to borrow mine for a while. And then how, how do you then know that this kid is not clicking on something? or installing some uh, candy game stuff or or doing things with your computer, which is not really your computer. It belongs to your employer. And the other interesting uh, challenge here is, um, remember I said uh, that security culture are the um, uh, ideas, customs, and the social behavior of a particular group. Now, the social element typically place in the physical world, meaning when you and I sit down at the pub and have a beer, or when you and I meet at the office, or however you interact, then we pick up all these physical clues, all these signals uh, from your face, from your, 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 the way you stand, how you dress, how you talk, all those things. Um, and those things informs the people are uh, around you and, and changes their behavior, often without them uh, knowing it. Now, how do you do that? How do you replicate that kind of uh, social behavior and social influence in a virtual world? Like right now, you and I are talking across uh, two countries and uh, there's even a sea between us and uh, we don't even have video on. So all I have to go on is your tone of voice and whether or not you are silent. But one of the problems here is that you being silenced may be that you are just paying attention and doing your job, but it could also, in this virtual world, mean that your line just dropped off and I'm sitting here all by myself talking to myself. And how do I then control my own behaviors? What does it mean working from home? Uh, how uh, or what are the best practices? Um, in our company, one of the things we have done, uh, and, and I've seen that in many other companies as well, uh, you start building these virtual meeting places using different kinds of technologies for chatting and uh, video meetings, uh, me, for example, uh, in our company, we have every week, we have a virtual coffee meeting with a colleague uh, and, and, and these kind of things. Uh, but, but how can you control that new environment uh, and, and play those social influences in this virtual apply, uh, virtual reality? Um, and the short answer is we don't know yet. Well, that's certainly true. And one of the techniques that a few CIOs have used successfully has been to have security champions and going round uh, different parts of the workplace and educating people uh, you know, as a peer. And these are not usually people who sit within IT or, or security. They they may be in sales or they may be in marketing or they may be in operations or you know retail shop floor even. And these people have been, been very effective. But when you take that side of it away because it doesn't work anymore can't work you're then removing one of the tools we have is there is there much 
work being done at the moment in the industry about how we replace some of those tools. So, you know, can you slot a security champion into a virtual coffee morning, like you're saying, you know, you're doing your company, you know, could those type of tools, which we're using to replace some of the human interaction we've lost more generally, be adapted to work in security too? I think that's a great question and, and uh, more importantly, a very, very, very good uh, suggestion that you're making there. Um, I haven't seen anything like that, but but I'm sure that there must be some organizations uh, or at least some of those champions who are way ahead of us here. Um, and, and I think that's an awesome thing. So, so, so let's uh, turn your question into the answer and tell the audience here that that's what you should tell your security audience or champions to do, actually. Reach out, set up these virtual meetings, be it lunch and learns or virtual coffee meetings. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that social human interaction. And we have to be willing to borrow and adapt as well. So something that has come up, I know you're you're quite passionately interested in this and we've talked about it before and uh, it's something that's come up quite a lot during the past 12 months is the whole question of mental health and well-being. Quite a lot of work is being done around that in saying, well, how can we support people better in an online environment and overcome some of the problems of isolation and feeling disconnected? Now, again, that may be an area that security is not yet looked at, but perhaps we could. Part of that uh, means to remind ourselves uh, and, and if you don't know, realize that every single human being with a very, very few exceptions are uh, like Freddie Mercury. Uh, we are great pretenders. We pretend that we don't care or we pretend that we care or we pretend that we are okay. And that's a problem here, right? I don't want you to see my pain. So when I meet you, I will pretend to be fine. Well, the moment you turn around, I will go back into my corner and start crying again. And, and, and I, th I think that may be one of the challenges uh, with the virtual offices. And uh, along those lines, we also know from psychology that having human interaction is, uh, or especially meaningful human interaction, is very, very important for our well-being. And, and how do you do that in a physical, um, <laughs> no longer physical um, environment? And that will only become more of an issue if, as a lot of organizations are saying they will keep remote and home working as a permanent part of their operations in the future and they're not going to go back to where they are or where they were in 2019 and again just pulling that back into the area of security have we created potential for new risks in this new way of working and what should organizations be looking to do in the immediate future to reduce some of those risks? So uh, your first question, have we created uh, additional risk? Obviously, yes, clearly. Uh, what are they? Uh, I think the future will tell us. I think the hackers will tell us. And I think we are only starting to see some of those uh, on the cybersecurity side. On, on the mental side, on the physical side, um, I think there may be some long-term uh, challenges uh, what should organizations do? <sighs> I, I, I think that one of the challenges 
when a crisis like COVID hits is that none of us actually have the experience. We don't have the knowledge. What we do have are some models and some uh, analytics and some numbers. And then we have to choose the numbers we believe the most and then communicate that story. Uh, and, And most of the world, I think, have done that reasonably well. And I'm not going to point any fingers today. Um, but but what I'm saying is that because we actually don't know, we, we haven't seen anything like this, any kind of advice on what you need to do will be nothing but opinions. Um, and, and that boils down to then it's up to you, up to your organization to analyze the risks that you can. So, so you need to identify them accepting that you can't identify them all as usual and there will come new ones short term and long term that you need to handle probably while hitting the ground running and tackling everything else at the same time um so so, so i i think the answer is vigilance uh, you need to build a, a, an organization that that can um very quickly ad- adopt and adjust to whatever reality that is coming because it's not going to be like it was before uh, COVID. Author and security researcher Cairo there on how the last year has created additional risks that we're only now starting to see come through in cybersecurity. It's too early yet to know the full impact, but what is clear is the world won't go back to the way it was in 2019. That, though, is the last in our short series on security awareness and security culture. I hope you found it useful. Our next episode will be a special report on Zero Trust, and that will be live on Tuesday the 23rd of February. I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, as ever, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>